Hello and welcome to the History Film Club. I'm Alex von Tunzelman, a historian and screenwriter. And I'm Hannah Gregg, a historian and a consultant to film and television. And Hannah, this week we have a very exciting applicant to join the History Film Club. We have Alyssa Goldstein-Seppenwall. Alyssa is Professor of History at California State University, San Marcos, and she's the author of the very exciting book, Slave Revolt on Screen, The Haitian Revolution in Film and Video Games. Welcome, Alyssa. Thank you so much, Alex. I'm delighted to be here with both of you. Hi, Alyssa. I was um, really interested in your book. And when I knew you were coming on the podcast, I was thinking, I wonder what sort of films we could be talking about today that explore the Haitian Revolution on screen. And um, I'm sure I'm not alone in this, but I struggled to think of any kind of big epics immediately that came to mind. Can you talk us through what you would suggest was the kind of most significant film so far? Sure. Well, you're not wrong, Hannah. This is the big issue. Why is there not an epic on the Haitian Revolution? I will tell you that many people think that there's never been a film on the Haitian Revolution at all. Sometimes you see people saying on Twitter, there needs to be a film on the Haitian Revolution. And in fact, there are a number of films, but this has not been something that Hollywood has wanted to commit funds to making an epic about. So that's one of the big questions of my book, Slave Revolt on Screen. Why is this a topic that Hollywood has been so afraid of? In fact, I have a chapter in my book that's called No White Hero, No Funding, um, (laughs) Unmade Films on the Haitian Revolution. I know this is a topic that you also went into with Manuel Barcia, but it has seemed that this story which is about enslaved people engaging in violence to obtain their freedom instead of waiting patiently to be emancipated, that does not fit the kinds of patterns that Hollywood likes when it makes films about slavery or about Black history. So I can tell you about lots of films, but they are not epics. I think, I mean, Alex, I think we've been guilty of that actually on the podcast of saying, someone should really make a film about the Asian revolution. <laughs> yes. And um, I think we've fallen into that, that trap ourselves. But it's logical that you don't know about them. Um, for instance, there was one Hollywood movie that was set amidst the Haitian Revolution. In 1952, it was called Lydia Bailey. I have a chapter about this film, which was made by 20th Century Fox. How was it that Hollywood came to make this film that was set in the Haitian Revolution. But it was kind of a, shall I say, hot mess in the end. There were a (laughs) lot of competing imperatives. And after it came out, Fox really did not continue to promote it. So you cannot buy it on an English language DVD. It doesn't get shown on television. And so most people have forgotten about it. And as for films by Haitians... One of the things I talk about in the book is the kind of uneven distribution channels that people in the global South and especially in Haiti have. So even though Haitians have made films, it's logical given this inequality that you have not heard about them. So actually, I mean, this is kind of interesting for us at the History Film Club that we're normally talking about films, but actually there's a story here also about the absence of historical films. Exactly. And really, like, it's those missed opportunities. And I think you've spoken before, I mean, I'm sure you've written about the various kind of missed projects, because people have tried, haven't they? I mean, it's certainly black directors and stars in Hollywood have tried and have got nowhere. Could you tell us about a couple of those? Sure. Okay. So it's not only black directors, it's also been white directors. The most famous failed project is that by Danny Glover, 
who created a production company called Toussaint Films after Toussaint Louverture. Mm-hmm. And the point was to make a biopic about Toussaint Louverture. But Glover has explained that when he went around to producers, they said, great, great, where's the white hero? Oh, wow. And because this story does not have a white hero, they did not want to fund it. And so that is the most famous example. But I found a lot of others. Um, One that I was wonderful to have archives for this is William Marshall, who's kind of been forgotten compared to his friends Sidney Poitier and Harry Belafonte. He was originally going to be the first big star, big African-American star in Hollywood. He got a multi-picture contract from 20th Century Fox, and he played a Haitian revolutionary in this forgotten film, Lydia Bailey. But Lydia Bailey was actually the story of two white Americans falling in love in the middle of the Haitian Revolution. (laughs) It was centered on them rather than on Haitians. And so that was from 1952. In the 1960s, Marshall said, I want to make a real film about the Haitian Revolution that's not centered on white people. And he created a production company um, with the intellectual Julian Mayfield. And they worked on scripts on a film on King Henri Christophe. And it's amazing to read the fundraising pitches that they're sending out to investors and the scripts. But they, too, were not able to get funding. And I think I'll just throw in one more field project that was actually by a white director, Anthony Quinn, who's most famous for playing Zorba. He decided that he, too, wanted to make a film about Henri Christophe the king of northern Haiti in the early 19th century, who's been eclipsed um, for many people by Toussaint Louverture more recently. Anthony Quinn decided, uh, I think it was in the early 1970s, that he wanted to make a film about Henri Christophe, and he would play Henri Christophe, which means he would have to be in blackface. Oh, dear. (laughs) And this was a big scandal at this moment. And so you had people like William Marshall, James Earl Jones, criticizing Anthony Quinn and Anthony Quinn saying, this is outrageous. How can they say I can't play a black man? Would they say, you know, that James Earl Jones can't play, you know, various kinds of Shakespearean roles? And eventually that project, I think, is good that it was never made. But yeah, there's a long history. There there are many other directors that I talk about in that chapter. Well, Anthony Quinn, of course, used to go in for this sort of thing. I mean, for listeners that might not quite remember his career. So he was a Mexican-born American actor. Yes. Um, And certainly I've seen him in things, you know, you may have seen him in things like Lawrence of Arabia, where he plays an Arab character quite dodgily. The family of that character got very upset about his rather comic performance. And uh, Lion of the Desert as well, the Libyan film about Omar al-Mukhtar, he played Omar al-Mukhtar, the Libyan leader. So... He was cast even in a Libyan movie. So he probably thought he had great leeway to play. Exactly. Uh, right. Roles. That he had that privilege, right, to play whatever he wanted. Right. But uh, not so much. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that didn't work out. I think, yeah, you might be right. That one we don't miss. But it is extraordinary to hear about those other projects and to think, you know, in the 1960s, you know, you realize it would have been very hard to raise money for something like that. But I think it's more, you know, concerning really to hear about somebody like Danny Glover today, who is a really big name you know, who can't seem to get anywhere with this subject. Yeah. But there's still this resistance. Yeah. So one of the things that I talk about in my book is the inequality in who gets to greenlight films and who gets to make the choice of what to fund. And this is, of course, linked 
to these histories of slavery and colonialism. So if I want to make a movie or someone wants to make a movie about slavery or colonialism, the economic legacies of these processes are still there, such as there's more capital for making films in the formerly enslaving and colonizing countries. Mm -hmm. So white Americans or Europeans are typically more able to get funding capital than black directors, whether in the United States or from the global South. So if someone like Danny Glover wants to make a film or a Haitian wants to make a film, they have to go and ask for it from primarily white film funders and studio execs. And so they're able to control what the public sees on television or in the movie screen about these processes. And there's this just very great imbalance And I argue that film technology is worse than books, right? We can have books by C.L.R. James or other authors, meaning non-white authors about these processes. And writing a book takes a lot of time and leisure, but making an epic film is so expensive. Mm. And so that's not something certainly that Haitians have been able to do. And again, you still have this imbalance that to make this film, you have to convince white funders primarily to fund it. But I think it's fascinating and also really important, this work and kind of analysis that you've done of what hasn't been made, of what's been pitched and and not been funded, because it really helps the conversation in terms of thinking about what sorts of stories are told on screen and why. And, you know, it's often the case that we presume that stories aren't told because they haven't been written yet and nobody knows about them. Yes. Well, that's not true. (laughs) And then it's that no one's heard of it. So it's mysterious and it's not mysterious. You know, it's a very important historical moment. And then, of course, another explanation is there's not the audience. And again, I don't think that is the case too. And, you know, so what your work is suggesting is actually there is repeatedly an interest in the story and people pitching, 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 but it just not ever, ever getting greenlit. And we know that at some point soon, hopefully there will be that epic drama and everyone will say, wow, why wasn't this story ever told before? (laughs) And what will be missed is those decades and decades of, of effort to try and get the story told. And, you know, what's the tipping point? As an academic, that's always interesting to me in terms of pop culture and kind of memories about history. What's the tipping point that suddenly makes something the story that's going to be told next? And I think your book helps us with that quite a lot. Yes, I think the question is not only when will it be made, but who's going to make it. Right. So in France, about 10 years ago, there was finally a high profile effort to make a film on the Haitian Revolution. There was a miniseries that France 2, France 2 television made about the Haitian Revolution with a very high-profile cast, um, very well-funded film. But the original screenwriters and directors seem to have been ejected from the project who were Haitian because the funders feared that the story made white French colonists look racist which was a horrible and ridiculous thing. (laughs) Everyone knows French people are not (laughs) racist. And so they edited the script heavily to make it look like the Haitian revolutionaries were a bunch of hotheads who were ingrates and started this war, even though they didn't need to, and French people were very nice. So I talk about this much more in chapter two of my book. And I'll tell you that this backstory that I know about the original director, Raoul Peck, Being ejected from the film is something that is not completely public. I was filled in on this by people associated with the project after I started to complain about what a bad movie this was, and I had written an article about it. So just having the funds is not enough if the film is made without collaboration with Haitians and if it falls into these kind of older racist patterns of depicting Black history. 
And it's important to say there as well that Raoul Peck is such a major figure. And, you know, he is a Haitian filmmaker. Yes. He actually even briefly was Haiti's Minister of Culture, I think, in the 1990s. Yes. And, you know, has made some incredible films, including a really very good biopic of Patrice Lumumba and so forth, you know. Which um, I may be mentioning later when you talk to me about your library. Oh, good. <laughs> well, we'll get to that, you know. I mean, he's totally the right person to give this project to. And what a depressing thought that he was taken off it. Yes. And I think that's an important thing to realise as well, that even when you get somebody like that, who is a really credentialed director, you know, somebody who really is kind of quite powerful and can make incredible films and all this, that they're not allowed to own that story, that it's taken away from them. Right. I think that's quite shocking, actually. And a lot of people wouldn't realize how that would happen. Right. But it's part of this resistance to confronting the realities of slavery. We know that there was slavery, that the U.S. and the U.K. and France made money. But there is still an unwillingness by many whites in those countries to confront this history. Just look at the United States. I don't know if you've been following this. But just at the moment where scholars like me and others are saying we need to confront this history more, there's this whole spate of laws under the guise of banning so-called critical race theory. They're pushing back against talking about anything that might make white students uncomfortable. So, yeah, it's a real problem. And you you had this resistance also in France where people thought that after seeing this film, even in its sugar-coated, whitewashed version, that black youths would riot in the streets once they saw it. Oh, my goodness. Sorry, I just feel quite depressed now. Yeah, I know. <laughs> because, you know, we do have the same problems here and challenges in terms of the tuition of history in this country and Mm -hmm. various moments where the government or papers are issued suggesting that some history should be taught in one particular way which doesn't allow for the more nuanced narratives that we might be wanting to present so it's interesting that the same is happening in America that that kind of culture war policy isn't just something that's happening over here but trying to sort of make us look to ways forward. I mean, your book also highlights that if we move away from films, that in the world of video games, there is a different story to tell. And there's something else going on there, isn't there? Yes, I have to say that was shocking to me as someone who does not play video games. I mean, I did back in the day, (laughs) Pac-Man and Donkey Kong, but I have not been playing (laughs) historical video games. And so again, about 10 years ago, one of my students said to me, Professor Seppenwald, there's a new video game on what we're studying. And we were studying slavery in colonial Haiti in Saint-Domingue. So I said, what do you mean there's a new video game on what we're studying? And he said, Ubisoft is releasing a new game that looks at resistance by enslaved people in Saint-Domingue. So I I just, it didn't make sense to me. I had to like look this up and I watched this trailer and sure enough, this was a story about resistance by enslaved people in Saint-Domingue. And it was from the perspective of enslaved and formerly enslaved people. And given all that I had been finding about films and the need to have a white hero and the resistance to funding them, I just could not understand who was making this game and how is it so good? And that plunged me into the reality of this world of historical video games, some of which are terrible and some of which are actually quite sophisticated. And so this game, Assassin's Creed Freedom Cry, which was made by Ubisoft Montreal, is really quite good in many ways, especially considering all of the kinds of racist depictions in the existing films or in many of the existing films by non-Haitians. So that 
got me to start studying games. And then I found more, including by descendants of enslaved people from the Caribbean. Oh, wow. And I think there is one particular creator you've spoken about who was uh, a black woman engineer. Yes. Can you tell us more about her? Sure. So her name is Muriel Tremy. She's still creating games now. She lives in Martinique, but she went to university in the metropole in Paris, and she was an engineer, and she worked designing weapon systems for the French military. And as Um, Home computers and game technology decided to emerge. She decided to enter that field and do something more peaceful with her engineering skills. And she made these very, very innovative games with storylines at a time when people were not doing that. So she she turns out to have been the world's first black woman game designer. I have to give credit to someone called Elijah Lee, who did the research to confirm that that was indeed true. But what was even more fascinating to me than finding these games was realizing that she had collaborated with a friend of hers from Martinique named Patrick Chamoiseau, who happens to be one of my favorite novelists. And I had no idea that he had created video games. And in fact, all of the scholarly literature on him had not mentioned this either. So it was really fascinating looking back to the late 80s and these games that Tremie and Chamoiseau created to try to help French and British, because it was also released in the UK, and German and American audiences learn more about the history of slavery from the perspective of enslaved people. Yeah, so that was really fascinating to find. And I'll say that some people are critical of the idea that there would be games on slavery, especially made by, you know, corporate conglomerates, which might be making money from this history. And I understand this critique. But when you're looking at these games from Tremi and Chamoiseau, it's harder to make that critique. Chamoiseau has really dedicated his life to exploring the legacy of slavery and reviving the memory in Tremi too. So yeah, it's more art, their games. How extraordinary. And is there anywhere that people who are interested in Tremi's games could perhaps find them today or are they kind of really hard to track down? So the systems for which they were designed, the consoles, are mostly not yeah. in use unless you go to a game library. But vintage gamers, I have to say that they really facilitated my work because this is, again, not my field. They've revived these games and created gamer archives online. And so at archive.org, you can find the game code. And there's also a simulator that you can download to play it on DOS. So that's one way you can play the game. Another thing you can do, which I I do frequently in my work on video games, because I'm such a bad gamer myself and I get game (laughs) over very quickly, is to go on YouTube where people upload videos of themselves playing games. And so that way you can see a game from the beginning to the end. Yeah. So there, there are many ways. Also, I was able to get the game manuals and other kinds of sources. That's great. I mean, thank you, Alyssa. That's very helpful for me because I'm afraid I'm a bit like you. I lose a Pac-Man quite quickly. So I think uh, <laughs> I might need a walkthrough <laughs> from somebody. <laughs> Although I think we need to introduce a game library now as well to the History Film Club. Yes, and, an um, adjunct. gaming room. The, I mean, it's yeah. so fascinating. You know, and that really interests me when you're talking about this tipping point that Hannah mentioned as well, that actually interests me, you know, because Assassin's Creed is a huge, huge franchise, that actually that tipping point hasn't kind of happened yet. I mean, maybe it will. Maybe it's about to. Maybe the talk of a new show on this or something will mean that we get to see a more authentic version of the Haitian Revolution on screen. But, you know, you feel like it must be coming. I hope. I mean, as I was saying, you know, if games are slightly ahead in terms of the kind of narratives that they're telling, 
Is that because they don't suffer from the same structural problems that you've highlighted in terms of films being commissioned? Is this also a story about financing and money? Or is it just that games, for some reason, need a different kind of narrative, that you have to play them in a different way, you're engaging with them differently to film? You know, that makes these kind of narratives more useful for them? It's an excellent question, and I'm still thinking it through, but I'll say I don't think that games are ahead of film in every topic. I think okay. that this is just, a, this is an unusual topic. Yeah. And one of the issues is that this is a story that is about violence by African descended people against white people. And given the concentration of film capital in largely white hands in Hollywood and elsewhere, it's a story to which there's been great resistance. But somehow in the game world, it's coincided with a push by game companies to recognize that black gamers don't, or I should say it coincided because there was a moment that already feels like it's being lost. Um, But there was a moment when game companies realized that black gamers wanted games in which they saw themselves represented. Frequently games have had white male protagonists. And so there was this moment in the early 2010s when game studios were trying to do better. I've been told by developers including some who worked on these games, that now it's much harder. That there was such a backlash by white male gamers as part of this so-called Gamergate that now many white male game studio execs once again want to have white male protagonists. And the other thing that's interesting is that historians, in the same way that the two of you collaborate with film studios, historians are starting to collaborate with game studios also. That's one reason that Assassin's Creed Freedom Cry is so good, I think. The consultant was my colleague Jean-Pierre Leglonec at the University of Sherbrooke, and the developer also, Jill Murray, really took seriously doing research on her own. But yeah, historians are starting also to make games with their students, which is a development I'm following and ought to be very interesting. Oh my God, it's a bit awesome. I think it's a bit beyond me and Hannah. I'm not sure we're going to But I mean, how great that they are. I mean, that's that sounds very exciting, actually, that that sort of collaboration is possible. Yeah, and gaming is it's really interesting because it allows you to have a set of outcomes. And I mean, I've talked about it a bit with my students. I, I honestly, I haven't done much work into games at all, but I'm interested in it in terms of what they do with historical narratives. And, you know, whereas a film offers you a narrative which you just follow from beginning to end, a game potentially has a different set of outcomes. So you're sort of invested. Your own actions cause something. There's a cause and a consequence. And that makes it interesting for when you're trying to design a game or think about how a game should be structured because it allows you to be different kinds of people or to know that this action has this consequence and there's a different outcome. And mm-hmm. I think it's going to take a while for historians, if we're collaborating, to get our heads around that because we're quite... Uh, <laughs> narratively, it's different. But it does allow you to engage, I think, differently. And it, that might be why we see... Maybe we'll see different stories told on games than films. Yeah, I think theoretically it's very interesting. And folks who, again, who are really serious gamers and historians and can marshal talking about many different kinds of games, Jeremiah McCall, for instance, who's written a book called Gaming the Past, you know, can really help their students think about all kinds of historical theory in terms of causality and contingency through thinking about games. So I think it's a really exciting area that's really just starting to get the attention of other historians who don't work on games. And my book, in fact, is one of the very first books by a historian that's on games on a particular period. Chris Kemschel in the UK did a book that's about World War I video games. 
but it's something that historians have, we just assumed that games were trivial. Hmm. So we, it's not really something we've been focusing on in the same way we've been taking film seriously. Well, let's hope that's very much changing. Um, I think it is. Well, obviously, you're very much part of that change, Alyssa, and thank you for your comments on that. As ever, it's been an education and, and other things I need to watch so and, <laughs> and do. And, you know, we always learn the History Film Club about the longer histories of, of film narratives. And um, I want to look up the 1952 Lydia Bailey, actually, as well, because I saw some clips on that. And I saw when I read about it in your book, I did a bit of looking around and the poster is so sort of shockingly 1950s it doesn't invite you in really the poster is this kind of Tarzan white man carrying yes. a woman in her yes. ripped clothes escaping from the kind of you know shocking scenes behind them but then when I was looking around there's quite a fan base for it actually isn't there and a lot of interest in it amongst certain groups of the internet which suggested actually it's not that it's such a white savior narrative right through to the end I haven't seen the film all the way through but there's some suggestion that there's nuances there <laughs> yeah. there's definitely nuances this is why I say it's a hot mess of a film it was so exciting for me um, I live in San Diego but I am a, a French and a Haitian historian which means my archives are not in Southern California where I live until I started to do this film project and then I'm only a few hours from Hollywood where I have you know <laughs> so I was able to get into the Fox archives at the University of Southern California and to read 20th Century Fox Records, and then also in Boston and at the Oscars Library to read papers of other people who worked on the film. And you've got an anti-colonial, basically two anti-colonial script writers in the post-war world cheering the Haitians on. And then you've got the studio heads wanting like a kind of bodice-ripping, new Gone with the Wind, in which you've got this man, you know, talking sense into a woman in a time of slavery. And you have all of these competing imperatives and fights about the script. So there are some amazing lines in the script. I don't want to get the line wrong, but basically the white character, after he meets Toussaint Louverture, who is a character in the film, says, now I understand why you call him your George Washington which equates the American and the Haitian revolutions, which was very unusual Mm -hmm. in the 1950s. But he also says, if I was a native born here today, I would also want to kill all of Napoleon's men, (laughs) which is a white man justifying retributive black violence against slave owners, which is also shocking. But then you've got that poster, right? And you've got, so there's a lot going on in the film. There are amazing things and disappointing things. Oh, we need the film of the making of. (laughs) So, you know, we need that. (laughs) I, I would actually, yeah, I would have written Alex and Hannah a whole book on this making of, but I said, no one wants to read a book about this making of this film they haven't heard of. We do. (laughs) But I needed to write this book first. So I needed first to talk about Haitian Revolution cinema before I could do that. And then I tried to squeeze the juiciest bits into a 40-page chapter. Yeah, I mean, that's fascinating. Well, I can tell you that you'd sell two copies to us. Yeah. So... Yeah, we wouldn't share. We'd get one each, wouldn't we? No, no, definitely get one each. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, how fascinating. Thank you. So as you know, Alyssa, at History Film Club, uh, we ask all new applicants to choose a favourite production to add to our club library. And it can be any historical film or TV show. So I was wondering what you wanted to pick. Am I allowed to pick two or only one? 
Well, let's see what they are. We might let you have both. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So Raoul Peck, we've already discussed, is my favorite director, um, was born in Haiti, grew up in lots of different places in the world as part of the historical processes of the 20th century in Congo, in Brooklyn, in Germany. And he just makes really extraordinary historical films. I've written an article um, about him that's called History is Too Important to Leave to Hollywood, Colonialism, or Slavery, Colonialism, and Memory in the films of Raoul Peck. So I love so many things about his films. So if I had to pick just one, um, I think I would pick Sometimes in April, which was his 2005 film about the Rwandan genocide. And it aired on HBO and starred Idris Elba. And it is an extraordinarily epic film about the genocide in Rwanda. Um, it did not get enough acclaim. Part of it was because it was on TV rather than in cinemas. But when it came out, Variety called it a feel-bad movie, which I think is something you'd never hear someone say about a Holocaust film. It's, again, this idea, oh, I, I feel guilty watching the inaction you know, of the U.S. and Europe while this was going on. So it's a really extraordinary and moving story that plays with time and also involved Peck working with genocide survivors who also acted in the film. So it's an amazing film. We did mention briefly earlier Lumumba, one of his other films. Yes, um, that would be my second one. Yeah. Oh, is that your second choice? <laughs> That's I, right. I, see. I was going to mention it, but then when I was thinking you said only one, I thought, okay, if I have to choose between them, I'm going to choose sometimes in April. But Lumumba is also a really extraordinary film. Peck actually made two films called Lumumba. One was a documentary, um, I think from 1991, and the second film was a biopic, from 2000. And it was uh, it was the story of Patrice Lumumba, who was the murdered president, the first president of Congo. And Peck was really trying to take Western narratives about Lumumba that had been very dismissive and negative, And he wanted to tell Lumumba's story from his own perspective. And it's also an extraordinary film. It is. I mean, I haven't seen the first one. I have seen Lumumba. So I'm Hannah, I've got to say, I'm tempted to say we should get these in as a double bill because the members excellent. I think so. I think so too. And also they're fairly recent. Excellent. So we should be able to get yeah. them. <laughs> so I think, exactly. I think, I think we should wedge both of them into the library. Um, yeah. It's yeah. really interesting movie. And it's very, I mean, actually, it was one of the very few historical films where I read it and said I wished it was longer mm-hmm. <laughs> because actually the story is so, you know, I mean, it's good to leave your audience wanting more, of course, but the story is so fascinating that actually I think you know you could even go into it more it's probably it might well be quite good to watch that as well with his earlier documentary watch both of them I think you probably get a very good view from those two together and again a brilliant performance at the center of it Erica Buani as uh, Patrice Lumumba is is really excellent we should have those it sounds like that might be three altogether well I mean I suppose documentaries don't really count as history film I figured right that doesn't go in your library but it's good to watch on its own that's just supporting material that's just that's around it that's not like fully in the library yes (laughs) (laughs) we also asked a difficult question of um if there's anything a pet hate that we should ban from the club have you got anything well, I'll say that Manuel Barcia already took my pet peeve, which is white hero films on black <laughs> history. But anachronistic language bugs me. 
I don't mind anachronisms. I'm not a nitpicker. So it's definitely, I try, I'm influenced um, by Robert Rosenstone's approach to historical films. I understand that a film is not the same as a monograph. A film has to be interesting and it can't be 50 hours long. So I'm fine (laughs) with compression and invention and other things. But there's one film that I talk about. I don't want to (laughs) single it out, but I mentioned in the book, there's a film that I like in many ways, but they used a modern script writer, uh, obviously, <laughs> today, and he just put things in the mouths of enslaved people in the 18th century that were ridiculous, um, like yelling, hell no, which is a modern expression. So I think that just kind of takes me out of the picture. But I'd say more generally, films that are about the period of slavery that really whitewash this history, that matters to me much more than dates that are wrong or people who didn't exist. So colonial nostalgia is my pet peeve. Oh, I'm definitely okay. up for banning that. <laughs> I think we've banned nostalgia before as well. So we can have let's let's specifically ban colonial <laughs> nostalgia. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's in the bin, Alyssa. It's not coming anywhere right. near, no. near our exclusive club. Um, We're very exclusive. Yeah, very exclusive, very exclusive. That's why I feel extra honoured to be included. <laughs> well, you certainly are. I think on the basis of all of this, we would be delighted to invite you as a full member of the History Ooh, Film Club. thank you. Professor Alyssa goldstein Sevenwall. thank you very much and welcome. Um, we do love to buy our new members a lovely drink from the club bar, which can make any drink. It can be soft or hard. It can be modern or historical. So what could we get you from the club bar? I want a rum sour made with... Haitian barbancore rum, please. Oh, definitely. Barbancore. I'm sure we probably have a bottle of that specially behind the bar for you. Thank you very much. We shall get it coming up. So it just remains for me to thank you again, Professor Alyssa Goldstein-Seppenwall, and thank everybody for listening. This has been the History Film Club. <laughs> <laughs>